0: We are in Mark chapter 9. I forced Amy to watch a movie that had Azazel in it yesterday, so um, some of you may be familiar with that film. I will not be referring to it any further. Uh, We're in verses 30 to 32 this morning. And they went from there and passed through Galilee. Father, we thank you that this is in the scriptures uh, so that we know. <laughs> we thank you that you give not just the scriptures through the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, but also that you illuminate these scriptures by that same Spirit so that we understand them. And so we ask that as we think on these things, uh, that you would grant us understanding so that we can believe what we are intended to believe, that we can be done with lies and half-truths that perhaps we have believed erroneously, and our trust might be more fully on Jesus, the object of our faith. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know you don't need to understand everything about gravity for it to have an effect on you, right? If I were to walk off the roof of this building, it's not very far. I won't get tremendously hurt, but I'm going to fall. That's just the way it is. When I try to live in a way that's contrary to the realities of gravity, bad things happen. This morning, we're looking at how, in part, The church has, in the past, twisted some realities, has uh, misunderstood some things that are incredibly important, and when you do mess them up, bad things happen. Over time, the doctrine of salvation, for instance, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, has been corrupted. This started way back in the early church about the time of Augustine, uh, with this idea that came into the church of what's called baptismal regeneration. Uh, This notion that regeneration, being born again, happens when you're baptized. And what came along with that was the idea that baptism washed away all the sins that you had committed up to that point in time. Well, the problem became what about the sins that happened after that point in time? And so people started to act inappropriately based on a false understanding of baptism, a false understanding of salvation. And they began to delay their baptism in the hopes that there would be fewer sins for which they might have to deal with uh when they died, But of course, does anyone know when they die? Well, this one bad doctrine began to result in a series of bad doctrines in an attempt to try and resolve this problem. So here comes the doctrine of penance to deal with those sins that you commit before your death after your baptism. Well, not sufficient for that. You you also start to have this doctrine of indulgences arising within the church. And the list goes on. How are the disciples to respond to some private instruction that has to deal specifically with salvation? We have a map, not my imaginary map, but we've got a real map, thanks to technology today. And the transfiguration most likely took place. That's a little fuzzy. Uh, Way up there at um, Mount Hermon, most likely, by Caesarea Philippi. So that's where Jesus and his disciples are going to depart. I guess I ought to move over here so people online can see me. Um, They don't need to see me, want to see me. So they're going to go south and west and it talks about them going, uh, passing by Galilee, and they're moving towards where we're going to find them next week is Capernaum, okay, which you see right there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's a bit of a journey that they're going on. Um, and the course of this journey, it says that he, meaning Jesus, did not want anyone to know about their journey. His intentions are not so much secretive as intended to be private. He's going to spend time with his disciples. He's not trying to engage in a preaching tour as he has in the past, but he wants to spend some time with his disciples because he's going to prepare them for what's going to happen in Jerusalem because they're not going to stop in Capernaum. That's just one stop along the way on the journey that is going to move us through the rest of this gospel toward Jerusalem and his death. The four, the reason for the privacy, the reason for the secretiveness, however you want to look at it, is given to us for he was teaching his disciples. That's the reason for all of this. But the verb tense with regard to teaching indicates to us that this was a frequent subject during this multi-day journey. It was not something that they talked about one time, but it's a subject that Jesus keeps bringing up, keeps talking about precisely because it's so important. That's what we find in Scripture often. For emphasis, they would repeat things. And so this is at least the third time already in the last chapter or so uh, that Jesus has brought up this question of his being handed over to the peoples, of suffering, of dying, and rising again. It's so important that Jesus keeps bringing it up. But here's the problem. They did not understand. It wasn't connecting. It didn't make sense to them. Now, there are some reasons that are given sometimes. One, a couple of commentators have mentioned that Jesus was speaking Aramaic, and, of course, we understand that. That is the common language of that region. And uh, Jesus may have used a word or phrase that was ambiguous in Aramaic. I don't think that's the problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's not an intellectual problem. It's also a problem with their prior learning. Precisely because we saw the scribes were mentioned last week, the scribes had been teaching a way of salvation and what is going to happen to the Son of Man that is very different than what Jesus is teaching about what happens to the Son of Man. They were talking about the glorious Son of Man, and as we've, I've mentioned previously, first comes the cross, then comes the crown. But they didn't understand that the cross, the suffering, would come first for the Son of Man, for the Son of David, for the Messiah. They had been taught about this victorious Messiah, this victorious Son of Man, not the suffering one, and so there's a sense in which They don't have the hooks to hang what Jesus is talking about. The gospel, we could say, often doesn't make sense to people the first few times that they hear it. And it's not because they're stupid. It's just, one, the spiritual realities of who they are, their, their thinking is futile, their understanding is darkened because of sin. It's a spiritual issue, not an intellectual issue. But it kind of goes deeper than that. John Newton talks about the spirit of the law, or a legal spirit. Sinclair Ferguson talks about this at length in his book on the Marrow Controversy. And they're not the only two. One of the spiritual problems that people have is that they suffer under this legal spirit or legalism. We're going to get back to that in just a little bit. But they don't understand, and that's only part of the problem. The other part of the problem is they're afraid to ask him, he's their rabbi. He's the first person they should be going to when they don't understand. And yet, they're refusing to go to him. It's not that Jesus is shutting them down by saying, I don't have time for your questions. I don't have time for your doubts. I don't have time for your ignorance. It's they're not even going to him with these questions. They're afraid to ask. And the first part of that, I think, is the problem of pride. Pride drives us to want to appear more competent than we really are or blinds us so that we don't see that we're not as competent as we think we are. It drives us to appear more intelligent, want to appear more intelligent than we actually are it drives us to have this image of being more all put together than we really are. And so pride tends to avoid the reality of our flaws. And so here's a flaw that they're refusing to bring to Jesus. William Farley, in uh, I think it was Gospel-Centered Parenting, uh, wrote, Religious pride always resists God's activity, even while he thinks it is serving God. Now, I say I think it's from that book because, well, it popped up in my Facebook memories. It said, wow, in the providence of God, that's wholly appropriate <laughs> for my sermon on Sunday as we talk about pride. But there's also fear fear that drives us to avoid the imagined condemnation of others. If we've we've been paying attention to who Jesus is up to this point, we should recognize uh, that Jesus generally is not going to be upset with his disciples for their lack of understanding. They are anticipating some sort of rebuke. They're anticipating some sort of rejection. In other words, they're just like us. Uh, don't we often withhold our real thoughts from people because we're afraid of what people will think and how people will respond? Isn't there plenty of that around the election these days as an illustration? The Roman Christians, you know, remember, Mark is writing this gospel to the Christians who were in Rome in, during his life. The Roman Christians likely struggled. As well, They struggled, likely, in light of living in what was uh, an honor culture. And what an honor culture does is, part of it is, you've got to look good. It's all about status. It becomes all about power. And uh, while there might be people with more status and more power than you, there are people with less status and less power than you, and, and uh, you're always trying to get more. And the way to get more is to look good. Not to admit faults, not to admit problems, not to admit, admit weakness or ignorance. And so as uh, the Roman Christians are reading this gospel, they're, they're probably embarrassed, perhaps, at a suffering Savior in light of the fact that they live in the city of the man who claimed to be the son of God, Caesar, with all of his pomp, all of his circumstance, all of his armies, and all of his earthly glory. I want you to notice something. Notice the patience of Jesus with these disciples. Jesus probably already knows what's going on in their hearts, and yet Jesus is not condemning them at all for this. He is not discharging them because of their ignorance. He's not casting them out. He's not insulting them. He's not verbally abusing them in any way, shape, or form. And yet they persist in their ignorance. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, not to let fear and pride keep you from understanding. Don't get locked in that prison of ignorance. Bring those things you don't understand to Jesus, bring them to the scriptures. This morning when I was praying for uh, the beginning of this sermon, for the illumination, I alluded to 2 Timothy 2, verse 7, where Paul says to Timothy, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And so uh, bring it to the Lord, but also think about it before the Lord asking him to grant you understanding. And he could use a variety of uh, means for that. It can be Scripture itself directly, but also can be books about Scripture, as well as the counsel of more mature Christians. Don't be afraid. Talk with somebody. One of the things that we've done in our uh, remodeled entryway is uh, if you go down to the north side, you can look, and there's a little rack, and it has booklets, and I meant to bring one of them up here today, but we have a series of them on basic beliefs of our faith. Why? Because we want our people to understand these things. And these are entry-level, hopefully easy to understand things, so that when people have questions about what we believe, they can get answers. Not just about what, but a little bit about Why? We believe these things. So don't let your fear and pride keep you from understanding we want to disciple you. We want to make resources available to you. We want to give you time. Instead of thinking, well, they're just not reformed enough. Too bad for them. Right? But pride and fear keep people ignorant of gospel truths. Well Jesus is talking about what we call the atonement in this passage and so what should we understand about this thing that we call the atonement well, that's really centered in verse 31 but I'm going to expand beyond to uh, primarily a lot of the the stuff that Rick read already this morning but Jesus says or that Mark records that Jesus talked about how he was going to be delivered into the hands of men which means that authority and power is going to be given uh, over Jesus to people. Okay? We see something like this in Jeremiah 26, 24, and it worked out pretty well for Jeremiah in this instance. Uh, but the hand of Ahiakim, the son of uh, Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. So in this case, it worked well for Jeremiah. He was not handed over to the people for his death, but Jesus would be handed over for his death. They would kill him, and three days later, he would rise. Now, Mark is summarizing what Jesus was teaching them. It wasn't as though on this long journey, the only thing Jesus said to them was this f- series of clauses. But Jesus was ex- was expounding upon this and explaining these things. And so here we see the ignorance of the disciples in even greater measure. Okay, This is the Reader's Digest version of what Jesus said, the summary of what Jesus said. Sometimes I read books, novels when I go to Donate Plasma, and uh, currently I'm reading Papillon, Some of you uh, are familiar with perhaps the movies, and uh, it's a pretty good-sized mass-market book. And uh, one of the guys, uh, one of the phlebotomists had asked me, you know, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, you know, it's Papillon. It's an adventure story about a man who uh, was sentenced to a penal colony in uh, South America. He was from France. But anyway, my point was, is I was reading the abridged version (laughs) I don't know how thick the original is. This is the abridged version that Jesus, that Mark gives us of what Jesus was saying. But as we think about the atonement, the first thing I want us to recognize is that the atonement is necessitated by sin. Ephesians 2 speaks of this clearly, that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. Not only have we broken God's law, but also we're corrupt. Not only are we corrupt, but also he speaks about how we're under the, the authority or the power before, before Christ, uh, that non-Christians are under the authority or the power of the, of the prince of the air who works in them to fulfill evil desires. So that's one of the the great contrasts that takes place in Ephesians 2, is before Christ, the evil one is at work in people, and after Christ, the spirit is at work within people. But it's this reality of sin that necessitates the atonement, the atoning death of Jesus We are naturally in bondage. We are naturally children of wrath. It's not simply that we did a wrong thing, but it's also that we're fully corrupt. And we're so corrupt that we can't even see that we're corrupt. It's the air that we breathe. You don't see the air you breathe unless it's cold outside um, or it's really polluted, But the air you breathe is just there. You don't see it, you don't notice it, and so is your sin. It's just there. You don't see it, you don't notice it, until it ticks somebody else off, generally speaking. We don't recognize the gravity of our sin. For instance, in his famous book, Cordaeus Homo, Anselm of Canterbury, is trying to explain the need for the substitutionary atonement. We're going to get to the substitution part next. Okay, but he's, he's explaining this to Bozo, his friend. Uh, this is before, this is not spelled the same way as Bozo the clown, so don't, you know, I grew up watching Bozo the clown. Um, but what, what Anselm says, and the, the whole book is written in the form of a dialogue of, of questions, he's following, in a sense, the, the soteric method. But he says to Bozo, who doesn't get why Jesus had to become man, you have not as yet estimated the great burden of sin. The disciples have not yet estimated the great burden of sin. And if we think that the atonement of Jesus is is nice but not necessary, it means we have not yet estimated properly the great burden of sin. One of the problems that the church of Rome had is they had this sliding scale of sin. Some of them were mortal sins. They, they could kill grace, and some of them were merely venial sins. They were a problem, but they didn't kill grace. Although if you get enough of them that you haven't dealt with, then you, 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 know, you have a big problem. In a sense, they are minimizing the problem of sin with their sliding scale. But let's not think that they are the only ones who do this. Uh, do not Protestants do the same thing? Oh, there's certain sins that we think are really, really bad, and other sins, uh, not so bad. Piccadillo. I was listening to an interview with uh, Jason Whitlock, who... Actually is um, an african American sports writer, and occasionally he gets in trouble with controversy because uh, he speaks his mind and uh, One of the things he was talking about was the election, and he was getting into trouble. This is not about the election; this is about him getting into trouble, okay. And as he was talking with others, he, he mentioned, and he grew up in church, his mom brought him the church, and he was discussing things with his mom, and, and he said, "Mom, you've made racism into the ultimate sin. It's a sin. But so, is, so are these other sins." And that's the problem is we, we tend to take like one sin and for some people it's racism and we make this the worst sin imaginable so that we've got to tear down statues. I'm not trying to get political. Okay. Talking about our tendency to elevate certain sins so that those who commit them are beyond redemption. And that's not the way God sees it. The unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In heaven, there'll be people who committed every other sin imaginable, including racism. So, what did Rome do with this post-baptismal sin? How did they, in a sense, minimize it because it's not covered by the cross of Christ? Well, we talk about penance and and having to do works of satisfaction, and those can be uh, praying the rosary. When I was a Catholic child, and, you know, I would be told, you know, 10 Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers. You know, I didn't have to do the full rosary. Okay. But not just that. They developed the idea of indulgences, money, to shorten one's time in purgatory, dealing with those venial sins, thinking that money can somehow buy time off. Don't worry, they still sell indulgences. They don't talk about it a lot, but still they do. My mother would uh, have masses for the dead when her parents died in order to minimize their time in purgatory. Lighting candles... So there's all of these things that people do in order to minimize uh, the time spent in purgatory by others or themselves that have nothing to do with the cross of Jesus. And what they ultimately do is minimize the cross and minimize sin. The disciples... Part of what their problem is, is they don't understand the necessity of his death to deal with sin. So they're confused as to why he must die. The second thing I want us to understand about the atonement is that in addition to being necessitated by sin, the atonement is substitution. Okay? We, we read from Leviticus 16, and that's the, the great day of atonement. That's the one day of the year that the great high priest went back into the Holy of Holies. But you know what? In order to go back there into the Holy of Holies, he had to deal with his sin first. And So there's the bull, but you also have the ram. You also have the goat, You have all of these animals, all of these sacrifices that have to be made in order for the people to be forgiven of their sin. But all of these animals are substitutes for the people. And so the the great high priest, as a substitute for the people himself, would lay his hands upon the animals and he would confess the sins of the people and place them upon the goats. One goat would be slaughtered and the other goat would be sent into the wilderness. The scapegoat. Pictures of God's propitiation, the, the removal of, of his wrath, the satisfaction of his wrath against sin, uh, but secondarily that idea of expiation, the removal of the offense by the, the goat that it goes into the wilderness. Banished. The sin is removed from God's sight, so there's no more cause for God to be angry with his people. Substitution. These animals, these bulls, goats, and rams, all prefigure the work that Jesus is going to do to remove the sin of his people. He's going to be a substitute. He's going to stand in their place. He's going to take what they deserve in terms of the wrath of God. And so Christ must bear all of our sins, not simply some of our sins, not most of our sins, he must bear all of them or we will perish for those that we still bear. Why? Well, one of the passages that I kept uh, bumping up against, so to speak, the last couple of weeks as I work with Asher on his uh, membership class is Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. Not a bunch of sins. Sin. So we can't think that our gossip, our greed, our unrighteous anger, or whatever sin it might, we might be talking about, we can't think that that can be removed by saying a couple of nice prayers. That cannot be removed by lighting a candle. That cannot be removed by paying money for an indulgence. The only thing that can deal with that sin is Christ and Him crucified. In other words, the whole reason for Anselm's book is that there is no Christianity without this idea of substitution. It's not just the Church of Rome that has introduced problems with this, that has tried to remove this idea of substitution. Uh, One of the, I, I say great, I should say infamous, one of the infamous leaders of the Second Great Awakening in America, Charles Grandison Finney. For some people, he's a hero, and I don't understand it at all. Because part of what Finney's problem was, is that he held to the governmental theory of the atonement. Not as part of, his idea of the atonement, but the whole shebang when it comes to the atonement. And the governmental theory of the atonement is basically this. Jesus shows you how bad sin is, so you better repent. But what's the penalty for my sin? It doesn't have a sin-bearing Savior. It just has a sin-showing Savior. And a sin-showing Savior is not enough to save you. There have been a number of people that have taken up this similar idea. Third thing I want you to understand about the atonement is that it's about blood-bought forgiveness. The sacrificial blood that is shed, the blood of the goats, the blood of the bulls, the blood that's sprinkled there uh, onto the altar and also onto the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, this prefigures blood, uh, Christ sacrificially shed, uh, shed blood. I have too many S's in there. Sacrificially shed blood. There's no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. We see that in Hebrews 9, verse 22. The second part of that verse, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The, the blood of the bulls and the goats was provisional, waiting for the time that Jesus would come and shed his blood. And we see that in Hebrews 10 as well. In order for men to be forgiven, a man must die for men. And this man who must die for other men must be one who has no sins of their own. And so that's part of why the author of Hebrews goes to great pains to speak about how Jesus, though tempted in every way like us, was without sin. He didn't have to pay for his own, so he's free to pay for ours. This blood-bought forgiveness. Only Jesus qualifies to be that. Great high priest. It's common now for liberals and progressive Christians to reject the idea of this blood bought forgiveness. Stephen Chalk, who's a, from a, one of the Brits, has called it uh, cosmic child abuse. He doesn't understand. He's like the disciples on the road to Capernaum. He he, he doesn't get it. The Son freely offered his life in our place. It's not child abuse, but it is the recognition that blood must be shed, and his is the only that can be shed for our salvation. Jesus agreed to this precisely because he loved his people. He loved his bride. And so every disciple that Jesus has is a blood-bought disciple who is humbled by their sin, but is also filled with hope because they have seen his love revealed through the cross. So how should they understand the atonement? That Jesus is... Our bloodshedding substitute for sin. Well, so what? What does this mean about Jesus? And what I say is, when I ask that, is like, what about his character? Not about what he did, but about who he is. Uh, the Puritans did a lot of stuff on this. Now we get back to that legal spirit thing that I was talking about a little while ago. Fear and pride are a big part of having a legal spirit because you, when you think you've obeyed, you're filled with pride, and when you think you've failed, you're filled with fear. So our, our pride and our fear tend to erect this false God, a God who seems to be very very reluctant to forgive and a God who is very quick to judge. Since yesterday was Halloween, my mind went to the movie Halloween. Sometimes we think of God as Mike Myers, Michael Myers, not the actor, but the killer. And if we just move in the wrong direction, he'll find us and kill us. That is a legal spirit with regard to to God, And yet, there are so many Christians who live with a, a constant sense of guilt. There are so many Christians who, who are always afraid that God is going to pounce on them if they do the wrong thing. That's a horrible way to live. And you don't have to live that way. What do we see in Genesis 3? We see Adam and Eve hiding from God, because they know guilty, they know they're guilty, and they feel shame. What does God do? He beats the bushes looking for them, but not to harm them. That's what I want you to understand. He's coming so that they can confess the wrong they've done. He's coming because he has plans to reveal the gospel in its seed form to them. He's coming because he's going to kill an animal in their place in order to put clothing on them instead of the leaves that they've kind of stuck together to hide their shame. In other words, what we find in Genesis 3 is a God who comes in mercy. A God who comes in pity. A God who comes in order to bestow mercy and grace. But it's not just Genesis 3. Let's think about Exodus 33 and 34. Oh, when Moses wants to see the glory of God, show me your glory, Moses says. And God says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you. His glory is his goodness. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So the first thing God says when it talks about glory is goodness, mercy, grace. That's the glory of God. Does he have wrath? Oh, yeah. But as we're going to see, there's a difference between his mercy and his wrath. When Moses is hiding in the cleft of the rock and God passes before him, he proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and then he talks about how he, of course, does not leave the guilty alone, but the third and fourth generation. Think about the contrast for a moment. Steadfast love for thousands of generations. It's a long time. That's abundant. Wrath for three or four. We see that God be, he reveals himself first with forgiveness. He's merciful. He's gracious. But he's slow to anger. He's quick to mercy, slow to anger. Quick to grace, slow to anger. He's abounding in this steadfast love and faithfulness that we talked about earlier. That's who he is. That's who he reveals himself to be. And that's who we must believe him to be because he reveals that to us in the scriptures. Furthermore, let's go back to Mark 9. Whose idea is this atonement anyway? The Father and the Son entering into eternal covenant. It's not the idea of the disciples. The disciples don't even understand it. They didn't make it up. They didn't come along after the fact and say, well, you know, let's come up with this idea about how Jesus had to die. The atonement, while dealing with the wrath of God, also reveals the heart of Jesus as good, as gracious, and merciful because he didn't have to do it. It's a manifestation of his love. It's his his love that drove him there, but it's also his love that is shown to us there. Such that Paul later on in Galatians 2.20 would say, talking about the Son of God says, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul understood because of the cross the immense love of Jesus for him, and so should we. for calvin assurance of salvation had to do uh, not with the question of well how do i know that you know that i'm saved for them it, for him rather it had to do more with how can i know i can be saved the objective reality of salvation being sure that god is willing and able to save sinners through the cross of christ and so for him that's why it was an essential aspect of saving faith because you only believe if you think God's willing and able to save you. You're not diving into the dark. It's not a a leap into the dark, but rather saving faith is the confidence because of the cross that Jesus is willing to save and able to save. So we find passages like this that that drive it home in case you, you're not sure about that you're you know isaiah fifty seven speaking of israel, but it's just as true for us. I have seen his ways, which are wicked, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Yeah, Isaiah talks a lot about the wrath of God, but he speaks just as much, if not more, about the mercy of God and restoration. I will heal him. Let me put it this way before I finish. Your raindrops of sin cannot extinguish the raging wildfire of his atoning love. Why do I say wildfire? That sounds a little dangerous and and stuff. Well, Deuteronomy, our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. And your sin cannot extinguish his redemptive love for you. Steve Brown at the first Ligonier conference I went to said that there is nothing you can do to add to or take away from the cross of Christ. In other words, your sin can't diminish its power and efficacy, and there's nothing that you can add like, you know, special gifts and candles and all of that stuff to add to the cross of Christ. The cross itself is sufficient and needs no help from anything you can do, and there's nothing you can do that can ruin its value and merit for you. Another way of putting this, the sun of his mercy and grace still shines behind the clouds that are produced by your sin. You can't eliminate the sun. So Jesus is a fountain of mercy and grace towards sinners. So if we're going to kind of take these three things and and kind of put them together, what we find is that Jesus is the willing substitute for prideful, fearful sinners. The Reformation returned the focus of the church not only to Christ and him crucified, but also at its best to Jesus who loves and pursues sinners. It restored a faith in which we obey because we've been loved, because we've been accepted, instead of the false faith that we obey in order to be loved, in order to be accepted. This is not just a struggle that happened way back then in 1517 but it's one that continues to rage in our hearts. And so I invite you to, to rest in this Jesus by faith, this Jesus who loves you, this Jesus who went to the cross for your sin to completely accomplish your salvation, not partially accomplish your salvation. Let's pray. Father, um, Help us to understand. Help us to grasp that we might believe more fully, that we might trust more completely, and therefore glorify Jesus evermore because we recognize him as the full Savior, the complete Savior, the sufficient Savior. So that we proclaim Christ and Him crucified alone as the Savior of sinners. And we ask this in His name. Amen.